We'll be in Psalm 90 this morning. Tonight, Brother Adam is going to be speaking again. And tomorrow morning, we take Macy off to college. And so for the next two weeks, I am not going to speak, that I know of, one time in the next two weeks. That is a very odd thing for me to not speak for the next two weeks. It's the last time I'll speak. And as I was preparing my heart this morning, the thought came to me, what if this were the last time that you ever got to speak? Kind of a sobering thought. What if this were the last time I ever got to speak? What message would I want to preach? The truth is, I don't suppose I could get any closer than the one we've got now. Now, I don't anticipate this being my last message. Don't get worried here. I don't anticipate any tragedies happening on the thing. We're not going on a cruise, and so Carol will not be pushing me off the side. That's always a danger when we go on cruises, that I go overboard. If it ever happens, it was not a mistake. I'm just telling you right now, just so you can be prepared. But if I had to choose my last message, this would hit about as close to the mark as is possible. I don't know how well the words will come out of my mouth, but it cannot, I cannot dream of a better theme than what we have this morning. Psalm chapter number 90. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are all like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up, and in the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are all we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath are we troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sin in the sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are but threescore and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servant. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the day wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. Establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. These verses 
especially the latter part of this passage, have been a constant blessing to me this week as I wrestled through them and rested in them. And I trust that the Holy Spirit will do at least as much in your heart this morning as he did in mine. The title of this morning's message is The Beauty of the Lord. The Beauty of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, beyond any of a shadow of a doubt, we cannot get there from here apart from you. We would not even attempt it. But we come, both in this pulpit and in these chairs, expecting you to work. For you are our Father, and it is our right as children to hear your word, to be moved by it, and to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So we come, Father, as little children, expecting our Father to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This psalm is a prayer of Moses. Most of the psalms are David's, but this one is a prayer of Moses. And the words ring immortal in our ears. Look at verse number one. What an amazing verse. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Does that verse not cut clear to the fabric of your being? Look at verse number two. Before the mountains were brought forth, and ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. When you read that verse, does it make you want to fall down on your face and cry, holy, holy, holy? An amazing verse. So many thoughts in this passage, that we, but time doesn't permit us to deal with them. So we'll just focus this morning on the end, but I want you to know there's so much here. But look at verse number 17. This is where the Lord is really taking us this morning, I believe. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us this is the thought that has grabbed my heart throughout the entire week in order to get as much from the text as we can here let's lay down some track in our minds to guide us to our proper destination you know I'm very methodical in the way that I speak and so here we go number one is a question. What is beauty? It says the beauty of the Lord. What is beauty? You know, it's funny how we use words without really ever thinking about them or actually trying to define them in our own mind. Right now, your mind is grasping, grappling with a, how do I define the word beauty? I use the word all the time. How do I define that word? Well, if you look up the word, it says, the definition is a combination of qualities that please the intellect or the senses. A combination of qualities that please, or intel, please the intellect or the senses. An easier way to define it would be when things are put together exactly as they should be. When things are put together exactly as they should be. And let's see if we can get a handle on this. My family spent my second through the fifth grade years in a little town southeast of here between Mount Pleasant and Fairfield in a little place called Lockridge. It was farming community. 
And every summer in that farming community, one of the farmers would hire us to walk beans. I don't know if you're old enough to remember what that means, but let me put you into the realm. In that particular part of the country, the fields are so large that literally you cannot see anything other than fields. When you look around, there is nothing, there's no houses, there's nothing but fields. And they would take us, and Sandra also was hired, and she was the foreman of the crew. She would have been the fifth grade, and I would have been in the third grade, or something like sixth grade, fourth grade, something like that. They would take us out and drop us in the middle of this field and say to us, be done, and we'll be back in three, four, five, or six hours. Now, sometimes he'd drop his... He had a son younger than us, and Sandra would have to watch him, too, because he was hiring him, too. He'd be in the second grade. Now, if you can imagine a fifth grader, a third grader, and a second grader in a field so large that you cannot see anything living around us. This is before the days of cell phones and any of that. They would hand us a hoe, and they would say, now, you do this field. What you had to do was go down and chop down anything that was not a soybean, Every weed, every, they call it voluntary corn, when the corn grows up from last year, and all of that had to be chopped down. And so what we would do is we would take seven rows apiece, three on this side, three on that side, and the one down the middle, so that we'd be seven rows, and Sandra would be seven rows, and the other kid would be one row. He wasn't very ambitious. <laughs> and we would run. You only have three, four, five, six hours to get this all done. And we would run. You have to understand, I'm only about this tall, and the beans are this tall. And so the beans were as tall as my legs were. And so you're trying to, if there's a weed over there, you have to hop, hop, hop over three rows and hop, hop, hop back. How many did this actually? You know my pain, right? Now, we would chop down all of those weeds out of that whole field. We made, this is 1978, we were poor and we made a dollar an hour, give or take. And that was pretty good money for a dirt poor kid like me. A dollar an hour running as hard as we could out in the blazing sun for six hours. That was pretty good money and we were glad to get it. Now, that's changed me. Here I am 40, over 40 years later. My kids think I'm weird, but we'll be driving down the road. And I have said this 500 times. I will say something like, that is a beautiful field of beans. Anybody who else has done this and say they do the exact same thing? You say, that is a beautiful field of beans. Now, does that mean I love the look of bean plants? They have some intrinsic beauty? No, they're green. You can't even tell them one from the other. What it means is there is not one thing out of place. All of that voluntary corn, these days they spray it out of existence, but all of that voluntary corn, all of those weeds have been chopped down, and all you see is a perfectly green carpet with nothing out of place. You understand what I'm saying? And you drive by and you say, that is beautiful, because everything is exactly as it ought to be. Does it make sense? For some of you, that does not make sense, so let me go a little farther here. We'll help you on a different illustration. When we were young, I must have been in the seventh or eighth grade, my brother Steve was a car guy. 
I think he owned 13, no, 18 vehicles before he moved out of the house. He found outside of Pella, next to an old building, growing up in the, in the weeds, there was a mu an old muscle car. Thing was a pile of junk in this, just growing up in the weeds. And he and dad hauled that thing back. It was an old muscle car. I've only seen one or two of them in my entire life called a javelin. If you're ever familiar with a javelin, had the big fenders kind of like the Corvette, an old muscle car. So Steve drags this thing home. They were, him and dad work on this thing forever and ever. And you have to remember this is in the late 70s. And so when they painted it, they painted it bright blue with what we called the Starsky and Hutch stripe. Remember the Starsky and Hutch stripe that went down the car and back over the top? Had a Starsky and Hutch stripe. And so Steve had this car. Now my memory's a little faulty here. Steve would have to kind of clarify this, but I believe it was the first time he drove it. They got it all finished. They worked on it for months, maybe even years. The first time he drove it, he went someplace, I think in Pleasant Hill, the very first time he drove it, and somebody either keyed it, which means you take a key and run down the side, or kicked the door in. I can't remember which it was. The very first time he drove it. Now, just say you're a car enthusiast, and you see this classic muscle car, a Javelin, sitting in this parking lot, and you look at it, you think, man, that is nice, and you start walking around. You've seen car guys do this. They walk around that thing. Man, what fenders on this thing, and the hood. This, you know, the hood of these old muscle cars. And as you come around the other side, you see that long scratch going right down the side of that car. Now, does that car enthusiast say, this is a beautiful car? He did until he got around to the other side and he says, everything is not as it ought to be here. That is not beautiful. There is something amiss in this piece of equipment. What is beauty? It's a combination of qualities that please the intellect or the senses. It's all things put together exactly as they should be. When you're standing in the, the, the checkout aisle at Walmart, and they have all the ladies' magazines there, do you ever see this picture of a woman, her face? She's got these beautiful eyes. Her hair is just immaculate. And then she's got this big wart right there with three hairs growing out of it. <laughs> you know, you never see that on the cover of a magazine. Why? Because just because her eyes are great and her hair looks nice, not everything is exactly as it ought to be. And we say, that's not beauty. Beauty is the proper combination of qualities, things put together exactly as they should be. Okay, that's easy enough to get to. I think you're all with me that far. Point number two. The Lord is beautiful. The Lord is beautiful. Could it get any simpler than that? The Lord is beautiful. Do you remember your dating years? Oh, brother. Those were difficult years. You see some girl and you think, boy, is she cute. So you start trying to figure out how you can meet her and how you can kind of become friends with her so you can see if this can be a dating kind of thing. So you plot and you plan, and all of the time her beauty is in your, going through your mind. And you're thinking about, boy, is she cute, and how can I make, become her friend? So you eventually, you make this all happen, and you finally get to be to know her, you meet her, and you find out 
that she is dumber than a box of rocks. Or you find out that she's meaner than a rattlesnake. And you know what? You say, I don't want any part of this chick. She, she's got this beauty of face. But I don't want any part of that. I think all of us can understand that. Fortunately, in, in today's world, it works a little different. I'm so thankful that I am not in that realm in, this, in today's day. Because today, you know, you meet somebody on social media. You see these posts that they make. You think, hey, this is a nice person. You, you uh, start developing this friendship with them through social media, and they're funny, and they're happy to be with. You, know, you kind of get all that. And then you go to meet them personally, and you find out that their profile picture was not exactly who they were. You see, these things happen. We have what looks like beauty, and when we find out on the inside it's not that way. Or it looks like beauty the other way, and we find out this is not all that it's cracked up to be. The fact of the matter is, very few people on this planet actually consider themselves beautiful. I won't ask you to raise your hand this morning if you think that you're beautiful or not. But the fact of the matter is, very few people, if they were being honest this morning, would raise their hand. If I said, who thinks they're beautiful here today? First, you, just for your own sake, you wouldn't do that. But if you were in your heart of hearts, if I asked you, do you think you're beautiful? You would say, no, because we each actually see our own warts. Now, whether they're on our skin or in our personality, the fact of the matter is there aren't any beautiful people, the truly beautiful people, because no one... No one has a perfect combination of qualities. No one is exactly as they ought to be. So what we do is, we being flawed people, find someone else who is flawed. And we agree to accept each other's flaws or help each other with each other's flaws. What other choice do we have but to link up with someone who's flawed? Now, but none of that's true with the Lord. Because the Lord is beautiful. In every definition of the word, the Lord is beautiful. In the Lord we find a perfect combination of qualities. In the Lord we find everything as it should be. For the last six or eight weeks on Sunday night, we have been considering the attributes of God. Each one of those attributes is perfect in and of itself. And when they're combined with all of the other attributes, they are all perfect. They each complement each other. The combination, no matter where you look at it, is beautiful. We often mistakenly try to reinterpret or rethink God. Let's say you've got the opportunity to, to remake God. You could take all the pieces of the puzzle, all the different character traits, all of the attributes, all that were available, and you could personally design your own God. It would be a fool's errand to do so. Why would it be a fool's errand? Because almost without question, you would put in an attribute that would not be good for you later. You would think a thought and put your God together in a way that is no longer beneficial to yourself. Almost invariably, it's almost, there's no, almost no chance that you would not do that. You would mess God up if you by some miracle put together God perfectly. That's what he already is. You wouldn't have changed him at all. It's who you already have is a perfect God. Everything exactly as it ought to be. 
the Lord is beautiful. He is exactly who we would want if we had wisdom to see it. Dad used to use this phrase to describe people, certain people. He'd say, if they were a record, the hole wouldn't be quite in the center. <laughs> now, <laughs> you young people, you have a little tough, tough time with that because you're thinking, what's a record again? <laughs> if they were a record, the hole wouldn't quite be in the center. Does that not describe every one of us in some way or another? We are all just kind of off-center. My friends, there's not much beauty on the planet. And all of it comes with flaws. If you want to see true beauty, you will have to find it in the Lord. In Him you find the perfect combination of qualities Everything exactly as it should be. All right, so we have beauty is, the, is everything exactly as it ought to be, a combination of per, the perfect combination of qualities. And we have the fact that the Lord is beautiful. Verse number, point number three, that beauty is upon us. That beauty is upon us. Look at verse number 16. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. The beauty, the Lord's beauty, is upon us. We know that all of the beauty on this world is flawed. Even most of that flawed beauty, though, has no connection with us. Let me put that, see if we can get a hold of that. All the beauty on this planet is flawed. But even the beauty, that flawed beauty, has almost no connection with us. That beautiful girl in the 11th grade. Okay, she's dumb as a box of rocks. But she still didn't want to have anything to do with you. You see, that beauty, flawed as it was, still didn't have any connection with you. That genius that was in your high school science class, he had no people skills whatsoever. But he went on to make a fortune. What did that do for you? That bubbly, outgoing person who liked everybody. They had so many friends that you were just background noise anyway. We understand these things, and as we've aged and matured, we've mellowed some, and those things don't bother us quite like they used to when you were 16. But now that you're older, you know that the more things change, the more things stay the same. And what the world considers beautiful, even with its flaws, hardly reaches you. That beauty doesn't get to you. But the beauty of the Lord does. Think of that concept. The beauty of this world, even if it's, even, even it's flawed beauty, does not connect mostly with you. But the Lord, 
his perfect beauty does connect with you. It is upon you. That perfect blend of attributes is working on your behalf every moment. I'll make it personal here. And you, I'm, just, I'm just giving your own testimony. I'll give my testimony, but I'm giving your testimony at the same time here. I am constantly amazed at my own life. I'm not joking. This is no joke. I am constantly amazed at my own life. I know that I am not very smart. I know that I get easily sidetracked. I know that I'm like the missionary's son on, on Wednesday night. If you saw the missionary's son on Wednesday night, he had a pair of cowboy boots on. A kid has a 50-50 chance to get his shoes on the right feet, right? You got a left one and you got a right one, and then you have a 50-50 chance. And here he comes walking through here, and his shoes are like that. You think, now how can this be? But if you watch a kid, the same kid will be every single time. He's got a 50-50 chance of getting it right, and he gets it wrong every time. That's me right there. You give me a decision, I got a 50-50 chance of being right. But my odds aren't that good. My, when you boil it all down, you think, man, life, how could you be wrong so many times? I will come up with the wrong answer even on a 50-50 chance. My stupidity will beat the odds against me every single time. I will choose wrongly more often than not. Now, if those are all two, and they are, what should my life look like? A dumb person who's blundering through life with all the difficulties that it has and making the wrong, who has no chance of making the right decision. What should that look like? Well, the answer is a total disaster. My life should be one long traumatic event as I reap the consequences of my best effort. My life should be one long traumatic event as I reap the results of my own stupidity. But it's not. It's a pleasant life. It's a life full of joy and peace and happiness. Are there problems? For sure. Are there difficulties? Without question. Do I make mistakes? More often than not. Yet, it is a very happy life. How can that be? Why am I not living the traumatic life that is the only life that I could make for myself? The only life that I could make for myself is a traumatic life, and so why am I not living that? Why are you not living that? And the answer is simple. The beauty of the Lord is upon us. There is no other answer. The beauty of the Lord is upon us. That problem that looms large on the horizon, his omniscience solves it before it gets here. That puzzling question that presents itself, his wisdom provides the answer. That impending disaster that's just around the corner, his power pushes it aside. That darkness that threatens, his light shines. The loneliness that starts to settle in, his omnipresence cheers. Instead of living a life of bumps and bruises and one catastrophe after another, the beauty of the Lord is upon us. 
we have this supernatural blessed life because of the beauty of the Lord. Look at verse number 14. Oh, satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. One of the stupidest comments a person can make is to say, I'm going to sow my wild oats, I'm going to have fun, and then trust Christ as my Savior right before I die. That is the stupidest thing on the planet. Why? For what this verse just said. Let me know your mercy early so that my life can be blessed. I can live that blessed life all of my days. Don't let me get here late. I want to be with you early on so that beauty can roll on top of me all of my life. That, my friend, is wisdom. That is a life worth living. Not what I can go out and do myself and have, a, but the beauty of the Lord is upon us. This is a blessing, my friends, beyond words. The Lord is beautiful. He is exactly as he should be. And the beauty of the Lord works on our behalf. And number four, we finish here, number four. The beauty of the Lord should be in us. It is on us. The beauty of the Lord should be in us. The beauty of the Lord should be in us. <clears throat> you guys know we like to, a bunch of us like to go kayaking. I often describe it this way. I am the Jed, Cam the Jed Clampett of kayaking. John Barry is the James Bond of kayaking. <laughs> I'm here with my little weenie on a stick. And he's serving Grey Poupon with his caviar. Okay, that's how this works. Spencer McCoy's gotten into the, the act. I have this little pup tent, kind of like the Boy Scouts used. It's cheaper than that, but that's what I've got. Spencer McCoy, I didn't get to go inside his tent, but I suspect that it had a fireplace and a pool table, but I didn't get to go inside. A tent is a tent. If you start reading in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, you'll find very detailed plans. They are making what was called the tabernacle. It is basically a tent. Now you think about the, the, how that thing was put together. It's just a tent. It's a better tent than I have. It's more intricate than what I've got. It's better than what Spencer has. It's more costly than all of the, so very costly, this, ta this tabernacle, this tent that they were making. What made it different than my tent? And there's only one answer to that. What makes that tent special? It's a fancy tent, but it's just a tent. I'll tell you what made it different. The indwelling presence of God. Yes. That's what made the difference between my pup tent and that tabernacle. Not the fact that it had gold in it and I don't. The fact that it had the indwelling presence of God. Without that, it is just a very fancy version of my tent.
Now ask yourself this. The Bible likens you to a tent. And the question is, do you have the indwelling presence of God? That is a very telling, sobering question. In the Old Testament, we find multiple times where priests profaned the temple, using it for purposes that was not intended. Let's see if we can get a hand. See what you think about this. Let's just say we could transport ourselves back three, four, five thousand years. Can't get my mind to do the math. To the Old Testament in Israel. And we're kayaking down the Jordan River. We pull onto a sandbar or a mud bar, whatever they have on the Jordan River. We pull off to the side and we begin setting up our tents. And all of our tents are being set up, and all of a sudden, this huge crowd of Levites start coming down with all these wagons, and they're carrying stuff. All the whole tribe of Levi comes down, and they start setting up the tabernacle right next to the river with us. And so after this, all the Kohathites and the, all the different branches of the, of the Levites, they set this thing up right there next to the river. And, of course, you're interested, and so you walk over, and you say to the priest, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I wanted to camp with you, so this is the only tent I had. Now, what do you think about that? You'd say, no, wait a second here. That's not just a tent. What makes the difference? The indwelling presence of God puts that in a whole different realm. And for you to haul that thing down here and set it up so you can camp out is not the answer here. That's not where this goes. My friend, you have the indwelling presence of God. You're not just a tent. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are not just a tent. You have the indwelling presence of God. And shouldn't that make a difference? Doesn't that define who we are? Several times in the Old Testament, Eli, okay, we have the, the, the priest Eli, his sons were profaning the temple. The things they were doing were driving God's people away. If that's what that place is all about, if that's what a temple looks like, a tabernacle looks like, we don't want any part of that. They were driving people away. Is this not what we do? When we take this tent that has the indwelling presence of God, and we allow things to come out of it or be involved in it that are not supposed to come out of it, that are not the beauty of Christ. What should come out of the temple when the holiness, when God, it's the holy of holies, what should come out of there? The absolute presence of God. The beauty of the Lord should flow out of that temple. What should flow out of ours? 
the beauty of Christ should flow out of us. I told you I've been reading a book on the Welsh Revival. I had to text John John wrote John Van Gelderen again this week as I come across another sentence I'd never seen before. The slogan of the Welsh Revival, the churches, the slogan that came out of that was bend the church and save the people. Now what does that mean? As you parse through that in your mind, bend the church and save the people. What it means is when God's people will quit using their tent for what it was not intended to, they will bow and let the the beauty beauty of Christ flow out, then the people around will be drawn. When we use it for other purposes, when we use our lives that are not in line with the indwelling presence of God, we are propelling people away. We are discouraging them from coming to Christ. But when we allow the indwelling presence of Christ to flow through us and come out of us, bend the church and save the people. That's what they were, that was the slogan of the Welsh revival. Do you have the indwelling life of Christ within? My friend, we are not just tents here. We have specific purposes. Now, don't make a mistake. Good priests were not the power of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was not special because they had good priests. It was the indwelling presence of God. Your tabernacle, you yourself, are not made beautiful by your good deeds and power. I'm talking to Christians here. I'm not even talking to the unsaved. It's true about them too, but I'm not talking to the unsaved here. Your good deeds does not make the tabernacle beautiful. Your power does not make the tabernacle. Your your tabernacle is made beautiful by the indwelling Christ. How can we allow anything but the beauty of Christ to flow from us? Isn't that just the most heinous thing in your mind if you would think about them profaning the temple Profaning the tabernacle. How could anything but the beauty of Christ flow from us? And you didn't know where we were going today, but we sang it right before the, uh, in the last song. In the la- one of the last phrases of the last song we sang. How does this work? We may trust him fully. All for us to do. They who trust him fully find him wholly true. It's not yours to make the beauty of Christ. The beauty of Christ is upon you. It is also inside of you. And it is only yours to let him live it out of you. It is the beauty of Christ that should be seen in us.
Beauty is a combination of qualities that please. It's everything as it should be. My friend, the Lord is beautiful. And that beauty is upon us. We live these supernatural blessed lives. And that beauty should flow from us. Let's pray.